Chapter 4 What Lies Behind the Law Let us sum up what we have reached so far. In the case of stones and trees and things of that sort, what we call laws of nature may not be anything except a way of speaking. When you say that nature is governed by certain laws, this may only mean that nature does, in fact, behave in a certain way. The so-called laws may not be anything real, anything above and beyond the actual facts which we observe. But in the case of man, we saw that this will not do. The law of human nature, or of right and wrong, must be something above and beyond the actual facts of human behavior. In this case, beside the actual facts, you have something else, a real law which we did not invent, and which we know we ought to obey. I now want to consider what this tells us about the universe we live in. Ever since men were able to think, they have been wondering what this universe really is and how it came to be there. And, very roughly, two views have been held. First, there is what we call the materialist view. People who take that view think that matter and space just happen to exist, and always have existed, nobody knows why, and that the matter, behaving in certain fixed ways, has just happened by a sort of fluke to produce creatures like ourselves who are able to think. By one chance in a thousand, something hit our sun and made it produce the planets, and by another thousandth chance, the chemicals necessary for life and the right temperature occurred on one of these planets, and so some of the matter on this earth came alive. And then, by a very long series of chances, the living creatures developed into things like us. The other view is the religious view. According to it, what is behind the universe is more like a mind than it is like anything else we know. That is to say, it is conscious, and has purposes, and prefers one thing to another. And on this view, it made the universe partly for purposes we do not know, but partly, at any rate, in order to produce creatures like itself. I mean, like itself to the extent of having minds. Please do not think that one of these views was held a long time ago and that the other has gradually taken its place. Wherever there have been thinking men, both views turn up. And note this, too. You cannot find out which view is the right one by science in the ordinary sense. Science works by experiments. It watches how things behave. Every scientific statement in the long run, however complicated it looks, really means something like, I pointed the telescope to such and such a part of the sky at 2.20 a.m. on January 15th and saw so and so. Or, I put some of this stuff in a pot and heated it to such and such a temperature, and it did so and so. Do not think I am saying anything against science. I am only saying what its job is. And the more scientific a man is, the more, I believe, he would agree with me that this is the job of science, and a very useful and necessary job it is too. But why anything comes to be there at all, and whether there is anything behind the things science observes, something of a different kind, this is not a scientific question. If there is something behind then either it will have to remain altogether unknown to men, or else make itself known in some different way. The statement that there is any such thing, and the statement that there is no such thing, are neither of them statements that science can make. And real scientists do not usually make them. It is usually the journalists and popular novelists who have picked up a few odds and ends of half-baked science from textbooks who go in for them. After all, it is really a matter of common sense. Supposing science ever became complete so that it knew every single thing in the whole universe, is it not plain that the questions, why is there a universe, why does it go on as it does, has it any meaning, would remain just as they were? Now, the position would be quite hopeless but for this. There is one thing, and only one, in the whole universe which we know more about than we could learn from external observation. That one thing is man. We do not merely observe men, we are men. In this case, we have, so to speak, inside information. We are in the know. And because of that, we know that men find themselves under a moral law, which they did not make, and cannot quite forget even when they try, and which they know they ought to obey. Notice the following point. 
Anyone studying man from the outside, as we study electricity or cabbages, not knowing our language and consequently not able to get any inside knowledge from us, but merely observing what we did, would never get the slightest evidence that we had this moral law. How could he? For his observations would only show what we did, and the moral law is about what we ought to do. In the same way, if there were anything above or behind the observed facts in the case of stones or the weather, we, by studying them from the outside, could never hope to discover it. The position of the question, then, is like this. We want to know whether the universe simply happens to be what it is for no reason, or whether there is a power behind it that makes it what it is. Since that power, if it exists, would be not one of the observed facts, but a reality which makes them, no mere observation of the facts can find it. There is only one case in which we can know whether there is anything more, namely, our own case. And in that one case we find that there is. Or, put it the other way around, if there was a controlling power outside the universe, it could not show itself to us as one of the facts inside the universe, no more than the architect of a house could actually be a wall or staircase or fireplace in that house. The only way in which we could expect it to show itself would be inside ourselves as an influence or a command trying to get us to behave in a certain way. And that is just what we do find inside ourselves. Surely this ought to arouse our suspicions. In the only case where you can expect to get an answer, the answer turns out to be yes. And in the other cases where you do not get an answer, you see why you do not. Suppose someone asked me when I see a man in blue uniform going down the street leaving little paper packets at each house why I suppose that they contain letters, I should reply, because whenever he leaves a similar little packet for me, I find it does contain a letter. And if he then objected, but you've never seen all these letters which you think the other people are getting, I should say, of course not, and I shouldn't expect to because they're not addressed to me. I'm explaining the packets I'm not allowed to open by the ones I am allowed to open. It is the same about this question. The only packet I am allowed to open is man. When I do, especially when I open that particular man called myself, I find that I do not exist on my own, that I am under a law, that somebody or something wants me to behave in a certain way. I do not, of course, think that if I could get inside a stone or a tree I should find exactly the same thing, just as I do not think all the other people in the street get the same letters as I do. I should expect, for instance, to find that the stone had to obey the law of gravity, that, whereas the sender of the letters merely tells me to obey the law of my human nature, he compels the stone to obey the laws of its nature. But I should expect to find that there was, so to speak, a sender of letters in both cases, a power behind the facts, a director, a guide. Do not think I am going faster than I really am. I am not yet within a hundred miles of the god of Christian theology. All I have got to is a something which is directing the universe, and which appears in me as a law urging me to do right, and making me feel responsible and uncomfortable when I do wrong. I think we have to assume it is more like a mind than it is like anything else we know, because, after all, the only other thing we know is matter, and you can hardly imagine a bit of matter giving instructions. But, of course, it need not be very like a mind, still less like a person. In the next chapter, we shall see if we can find out anything more about it. But one word of warning. There has been a great deal of soft soap talked about God for the last hundred years. That is not what I am offering. You can cut that all out. Note. In order to keep this section short enough when it was given on the air, I mention only the materialist view and the religious view. But to be complete, I ought to mention the in-between view called life force philosophy, or creative evolution, or emergent evolution. The wittiest expositions of it come in the works of Bernard Shaw, but the most profound ones come in those of Bergson. People who hold this view say that the smallest variations by which life on this planet evolved from the lowest forms to man were not due to chance but to the striving or purposiveness of a life force. When people say this, we must ask them whether by life force they mean something with a mind or not. 
If they do, then a mind bringing life into existence and leading it to perfection is really a god, and their view is thus identical with the religious. If they do not, then what is the sense in saying that something without a mind strives or has purposes? This seems to me fatal to their view. One reason why many people find creative evolution so attractive is that it gives one much of the emotional comfort of believing in God and none of the less pleasant consequences. When you are feeling fit and the sun is shining and you do not want to believe that the whole universe is a mere mechanical dance of atoms, it is nice to be able to think of this great mysterious force rolling on through the centuries and carrying you on its crest. If, on the other hand, you want to do something rather shabby, the life force, being only a blind force with no morals and no mind, will never interfere with you like that troublesome god we learned about when we were children. The life force is a sort of tame god. You can switch it on when you want, but it will not bother you. All the thrills of religion and none of the cost. Is the life force the greatest achievement of wishful thinking the world has yet seen? Chapter 5. We Have Cause to Be Uneasy I ended my last chapter with the idea that, in the moral law, somebody or something from beyond the material universe was actually getting at us. And I expect when I reached that point, some of you felt a certain annoyance. You may even have thought that I had played a trick on you, that I had been carefully wrapping up to look like philosophy, what turns out to be one more religious jaw. You may have felt you were ready to listen to me as long as you thought I had anything new to say, but if it turns out to be only religion, well, the world has tried that and you cannot put the clock back. If anyone is feeling that way, I should like to say three things to him. First, as to putting the clock back. Would you think I was joking if I said that you can put a clock back, and that if the clock is wrong, it is often a very sensible thing to do? But I would rather get away from that whole idea of clocks. We all want progress, but progress means getting nearer to the place where you want to be. And if you have taken a wrong turning, then to go forward does not get you any nearer. If you are on the wrong road, progress means doing an about turn and walking back to the right road. And in that case, the man who turns back soonest is the most progressive man. We have all seen this when doing arithmetic. When I have started a sum the wrong way, the sooner I admit this and go back and start again, the faster I shall get on. There is nothing progressive about being pig-headed and refusing to admit a mistake. And I think if you look at the present state of the world, it is pretty plain that humanity has been making some big mistake. We are on the wrong road. And if that is so, we must go back. Going back is the quickest way on. Then, secondly... This has not yet turned exactly into a religious jaw. We have not yet got so far as the god of any actual religion, still less the god of that particular religion called Christianity. We have only got so far as somebody or something behind the moral law. We are not taking anything from the Bible or the churches. We are trying to see what we can find out about this somebody on our own steam. And I want to make it quite clear that what we find out on our own steam is something that gives us a shock. We have two bits of evidence about the somebody. One is the universe he has made. If we use that as our only clue, then I think we should have to conclude that he was a great artist, for the universe is a very beautiful place, but also that he is quite merciless and no friend to man, for the universe is a very dangerous and terrifying place. The other bit of evidence is that moral law which he has put into our minds. And this is a better bit of evidence than the other, because it is inside information. You find out more about God from the moral law than from the universe in general, just as you find out more about a man by listening to his conversation than by looking at a house he has built. Now, from this second bit of evidence, we conclude that the being behind the universe is intensely interested in right conduct, in fair play, unselfishness, courage, good faith, honesty, and truthfulness. In that sense, we should agree with the account given by Christianity and some other religions that God is good. But do not let us go too fast here. The moral law does not give us any grounds for thinking that God is good in the sense of being indulgent or soft or sympathetic. There is nothing indulgent about the moral law. 
It is as hard as nails. It tells you to do the straight thing, and it does not seem to care how painful or dangerous or difficult it is to do. If God is like the moral law, then he is not soft. It is no use at this stage saying that what you mean by a good God is a God who can forgive. You are going too quickly. Only a person can forgive. And we have not yet got so far as a personal God. Only as far as a power behind the moral law, and more like a mind than it is like anything else. But it may still be very unlike a person. If it is pure, impersonal mind, there may be no sense in asking it to make allowances for you or let you off, just as there is no sense in asking the multiplication table to let you off when you do your sums wrong. You are bound to get the wrong answer. And it is no use either saying that if there is a God of that sort, an impersonal, absolute goodness, then you do not like him and are not going to bother about him. For the trouble is that one part of you is on his side and really agrees with his disapproval of human greed and trickery and exploitation. You may want him to make an exception in your own case to let you off this one time, but you know at bottom that unless the power behind the world really and unalterably detests that sort of behavior, then he cannot be good. On the other hand, we know that if there does exist an absolute goodness, it must hate most of what we do. This is the terrible fix we are in. If the universe is not governed by an absolute goodness, then all our efforts are in the long run hopeless. But if it is, then we are making ourselves enemies to that goodness every day and are not in the least likely to do any better tomorrow, and so our case is hopeless again. We cannot do without it, and we cannot do with it. God is the only comfort. He is also the supreme terror, the thing we most need and the thing we most want to hide from. He is our only possible ally, and we have made ourselves his enemies. Some people talk as if meeting the gaze of absolute goodness would be fun. They need to think again. They are still only playing with religion. Goodness is either the great safety or the great danger, according to the way you react to it. And we have reacted the wrong way. Now, my third point. When I chose to get to my real subject in this roundabout way, I was not trying to play any kind of trick on you. I had a different reason. My reason was that Christianity simply does not make sense until you have faced the sort of facts I have been describing. Christianity tells people to repent and promises them forgiveness. It therefore has nothing, as far as I know, to say to people who do not know that they have done anything to repent of and who do not feel that they need any forgiveness. It is after you have realized that there is a real moral law and a power behind the law, and that you have broken that law and put yourself wrong with that power, it is after all this, and not a moment sooner, that Christianity begins to talk. When you know you are sick, you will listen to the doctor. When you have realized that our position is nearly desperate, you will begin to understand what the Christians are talking about. They offer an explanation of how we got into our present state of both hating goodness and loving it. They offer an explanation of how God can be this impersonal mind at the back of the moral law, and yet also a person. They tell you how the demands of this law, which you and I cannot meet, have been met on our behalf, how God himself becomes a man to save man from the disapproval of God. It is an old story, and if you want to go into it, you will no doubt consult people who have more authority to talk about it than I have. All I am doing is to ask people to face the facts, to understand the questions which Christianity claims to answer. And they are very terrifying facts. I wish it was possible to say something more agreeable, but I must say what I think true. Of course, I quite agree that the Christian religion is, in the long run, a thing of unspeakable comfort. But it does not begin in comfort. It begins in the dismay I have been describing, and it is no use at all trying to go on to that comfort without first going through the dismay. In religion, as in war and everything else, comfort is the one thing you cannot get by looking for it. If you look for truth, you may find comfort in the end. If you look for comfort... You will not get either comfort or truth, only soft soap and wishful thinking to begin with, and, in the end, despair. Most of us have got over the pre-war wishful thinking about international politics. 
it is time we did the same about religion.